Welcome to Practical Christian Living. The first one who understood that Jesus was risen from the dead was John. And John is the youngest of the disciples. And John is the disciple that followed Jesus all the way to the cross. He followed him into the courtyard where Jesus had the Jewish part of the trial and was beaten. He followed him into the cross where he was crucified. Imagine what it would have been like to get to the tomb where you know Jesus' body had been and find nothing there. Today, as we continue our study on the resurrection of Jesus, our Messiah, we're looking at what the disciples went through to first grieve the death of the man they had believed was their savior, then to realize and really remember that he was miraculously and supernaturally alive, risen, just as he'd said. We're in John chapter 20. Please stay with us here for Practical Christian Living. Here comes Robert Furrow, pastor of Calvary, Tucson. The fourth thing we know for sure about Mary Magdalene is that she went all the way to the cross. Mary, the mother of Jesus, John, the youngest of the disciples, and Mary Magdalene watched Jesus crucified and were there until he died. And his body was taken down and given to Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who quickly prepared his body and put it in the grave. And the Bible says the women that were there watched while he was buried. So they knew where the body of Jesus was. The fifth thing we know about Mary Magdalene is the passage we're going to cover today is that God chose her to have the incredible role of being the first woman, the first person to see the resurrected Savior. So with that out of the way, let's pick it up in John chapter 20. We're going to go through verses 1 through 18. It says, Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark. We know from the other Gospels that she went there with the other women, that these women who had been there at the cross took spices and they went to go and prepare and take care of the body of Jesus. In the first century, it was the women who did that and they buried people almost immediately. There had been at least one Sabbath day. There might have been two Sabbath days. They haven't been able to tend to the body. She gets there early with the disciples with the other women, excuse me, not the disciples, with the other women. And it says, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Remember when the women were going, they were worried about the stone. Who's going to take it away for us? Then when they got there, it was gone. Mary is dispatched to go and get Peter and John. It says, then she ran and she came to Simon Peter and the other disciple. John, when he's writing the book of John, doesn't talk about himself. He doesn't say to Peter and John, who I am writing to you. He simply refers to himself as the other disciple or the one who Jesus loved. In fact, he does that here. He says, Gwinton called Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Notice that she there says, we don't know where they laid him. So she says that she's with those women. I say that because there are critics who will say, well, John's gospel tells a completely different story. There are four women that went to the tomb that morning according to the synoptic gospels. And, and it, this says that just Mary went. It's just telling us from Mary's perspective. Right? And they says, we don't know where they laid him. Note that Mary 
never even began to thought that Jesus might be resurrected from the dead. Maybe if this were Mary, the sister of Martha, she would have thought that because she anointed Jesus for burial. She anointed his feet for his death. And she sat at his feet. Jesus had said, they're going to kill me. They're going to hand me over to the Romans and I'm going to be crucified. And on the third day, I'm going to rise again. He told them directly, but it never even entered into her mind. Verse three says, Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and they were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. I don't know if you, if you're a guy, you got to find that funny because tell me that you're not competitive. I mean, us guys are competitive. We can, we can add anything to anything and make it competitive. It doesn't matter what it is. And so Peter takes off to the tomb. John takes off after the tomb. John's younger than Peter. History tells us Peter was a big guy. Might've been fairly easy for him to outrun Peter. Couldn't out wrestle him, but he could outrun him. But he wants to let you know. The one, the other disciple got there first to the tomb. And he says, coming to the tomb first, he stooped down and looked in. Now we get an idea of John's personality. He stoops down, he looks in, and he sees the linen cloth lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. So Peter finally gets there and he, he goes right into the tomb. And he saw the linen clothes lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Skip Heitzig says that there is an ancient tradition from the days of Jesus that if you were over at someone's house and they served you a meal and the meal wasn't any good, that you would fold up your napkin and lay it neatly off to the side. And that was a way for, of you saying, I'm not coming back here anymore. This was no good. I'm not coming back anymore. Or you would wad it up and kind of throw it on your plate and that was way, your way of saying, that was delicious. I can't wait to come back again. If that is true, and Jesus deliberately took the napkin that was over his head and folded it up, he would be saying, this world has not been hospitable and I am out of here. And he will one day come back again and take care of things. But it gives us an idea here, by the way, of how they buried people in the first century. And this is the reason that I wonder about the Shroud of Turin, by the way, because it says that there was a napkin that was placed over his head. Now, it's possible and one part of their tradition was to wrap the body like, like a mummy and then to lay a napkin over the head. It's possible that they could have folded a piece of material all the way down the body, wrapped the body, and then laid the napkin over the head. So that is possible. And I know there's been some dating of the Shroud of Turin and there's a lot of, a lot of inconsistencies with it. All right, we'll just, we'll just put it that way. But he lays it and he places it by himself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first, John's got to tell you again, I've beat him twice, he's got to tell you. He didn't have to add that in. The other disciple who got there first went in also and he saw and believed. Now here it tells us that Peter gets to the tomb and Peter runs to the tomb and he looks. And the word that's used for see is just to see. You just see something. It's like when you're staring and somebody goes, what are you looking at? And you're like, oh, I don't know. You were off somewhere thinking, but you were, your eyes were open. You were seeing something, but you weren't really seeing it. 
The word for see with John is another Greek word that means to see and understand. The first one who understood that Jesus was risen from the dead was John. And John is the youngest of the disciples. And John is the disciple that followed Jesus all the way to the cross. He followed him into the courtyard where Jesus had the Jewish part of the trial and was beaten. He followed him to the cross where he was crucified. And now he sees it and he believes. What did he see there? There's a lot of different ideas. Most certainly, a little bit later on in that evening, Thomas not being there, the doors are going to be locked, the windows are going to be barred, and Jesus is going to appear in their midst. The first thing he says to him is, don't be afraid. Because if you're in a room locked up and somebody suddenly appears, you're afraid. Okay? Doesn't matter who it is. Don't be afraid. It's me. And he sits down and he eats with them to show them that he's really risen from the dead. So Jesus certainly could have passed through the grave clothes. He didn't need to unwrap it. He didn't need to wake up and kind of like Houdini figure out how to get out of the straitjacket. So what did they see? Perhaps they saw something that looked like a cocoon. Except for the handkerchief which is folded and set off to the side and maybe that's why John believed maybe when John just saw the grave clothes there suddenly it dawned on him what Jesus had said and suddenly he believed but he was the first of the disciples to believe in the resurrection so there will be a lot of doubting by the way by a lot of the different disciples about the resurrection of Jesus because this is something supernatural we talked about this last week to doubt that someone is risen from the dead is a natural thing to do because you're talking about something supernatural. But the evidence for it really and truly is overwhelming. And so he believes. And then it says in verse 9, for as yet they did not know the scriptures that he must rise from the dead. That might be better stated, didn't remember them in the Greek. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary, who stood outside the tomb weeping, and as such wept and stooped down and looked into the tomb. Now here's what happened. Mary runs all the way to get the disciples, however far it is. And she says to, the disciples, to Peter and John when they get there, they've taken away the body of the Lord and we don't know where they've laid him. Peter and John, being the gentlemen that they are, run back to the tomb, leaving Mary behind. Now Mary has to run back to the tomb again. She's already ran there. She turns around, she runs back. By the time she gets there, Peter and John are gone. And she stands outside of the tomb and she's weeping. And as she stoops down and she looks into the tomb, she saw two angels in white, one sitting at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. And they said to the woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because you have taken away the, my Lord and I don't know where they have laid him. Do you remember what the Ark of the Covenant looked like? You remember it was a box? Can you think back to Indiana Jones? It's for most of us, right? So it's a box and it has two angels that are on top of it. And do you remember what the law said that the spot in between the two angels were? The mercy seat. So you had the Ark of the Covenant with two angels and once a year, the high priest would go in on the day of Yom Kippur and he would sprinkle blood on that mercy seat. So you would have blood between the two angels. And now you have Mary stooping down and looking in and there is an angel where his head was 
and an angel where his feet were, and there are the bloody grave clothes in between. John Corson said that this is the mercy seat in technicolor. I might go one step further. Perhaps this is the real mercy seat. This is the real mercy seat. What was the mercy seat doing on the Ark of the Covenant? Inside of the Ark of the Covenant was the Ten Commandments. And the mercy seat was the lid. And the blood was sprinkled on it because none of us can keep the Ten Commandments. All of us break them, right? And there's, not a, there's not a one of us in here that hasn't you know, bore false witness or that hasn't stolen. All of us have broken them. And so there was the mercy seat set on top of it so we were not judged by it. So Jesus became our mercy seat so that we were no longer held accountable for anything that we did. The blood was literally sprinkled on that seat. Now she turns away from these men who ask her, why are you weeping? And she says, for you've taken, they've taken away my Lord. I don't know where he is. And now when she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Suddenly now, Jesus is just standing there with her. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Same thing the angel said, if you missed that. Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Now, a couple of things here. First of all, why didn't Mary recognize Jesus? Well, he was, she was crying. He's in a glorified body. Maybe like the two disciples on the Emmaus Road whose eyes had been hindered from seeing, maybe her eyes are hindered from seeing. For whatever reason, she turns around and sees Jesus and she does not recognize him. And she says to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Now, here's what makes me think that all of the artistic paintings of Mary Magdalene are wrong. Because every one of them have her as some petite gal. But she's saying, tell me where it is, I'll carry the body away. She's like Helga, tell me where it's at, I'll carry it away. She's going to throw however big Jesus was, plus whatever spices Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus had put in there with them, and she's going to throw him over his shoulder and, and walk away with him? How was she ever going to be able to carry away the body of Christ? But this speaks of the love that Mary Magdalene had for Jesus. Tell me where he's at, I'll take him away. I'll care for him. So Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned to him, Rabboni, which is an, an Aramaic phrase, which means teacher. Rabboni, which is to say teacher. As soon as, as, soon as he called her name, she knew him. I, I believe that Jesus will call us by name. I also believe that Jesus, the Bible tells us, gives us a new name. We don't know what our new name is. Only the person who gets the name knows it. I've often joked, maybe that's, I've joked it too, but I've also joked that maybe that's because we don't want anybody to know it. Like God might name me annoying or something and people are like, what's your name? Never mind. <laughs> Only I can know my name. I actually don't think I'm going to get the name annoying, by the way, but I think it will be something that is absolutely amazing that will reflect who I am in Christ. That who will reflect the person that Christ has made me to be but there will be a special way in which you will call my name that I will know my Lord and Master. And she did when he said Mary. And she turned around 
and she called him teacher. Jesus said to her, don't cling to me, which means that what happened in between those two things was that Mary grabbed a hold of him around the neck. Rabboni, and she grabbed onto him, and he says, don't cling to me. He didn't say, don't touch me. He said, don't cling to me. I think she had a grip on him like, I am not letting you go ever now. He says, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascended to my father and your father and to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Now, let's come back up a little bit to verse 17. Jesus says, don't cling to me. I haven't yet gone to my father. Jesus had something to do. We don't know what he did when he went up into heaven to go to the father. He's resurrected from the dead now. We know that he's going to go and see the disciples on the Emmaus road that afternoon. We know that by the time they get back there, it's well after dark and that Jesus has appeared to the 10 disciples because Thomas is not with them. But in between that, Jesus went up into heaven. The Bible tells us that the temple, the actual temple that was built here, was a pattern where it uses the word shadow of that which is real. It's very possible that there is a mercy seat, an ark of the covenant that is up in heaven, and that Jesus literally went and sprinkled his own blood on that mercy seat. It's very possible that something in the law had to be completed because, and, and by the way, boy, there's an in-depth Bible study if you ever want one. That is, if all of the things in the temple are a type of heaven, then you see all of the things that's in the temple being a type of heaven. Also, by the way, all of the things in the temple are a type of Christ. If you want another study, you can just dive into everything in the temple. That whole section in Exodus when you're reading about banners and almond blossoms and, and gold and purple and angels, all of those things represent stuff about Christ and how they're put together and the rooms that are there and the, the furniture that's in there. And they all represent something that is up in heaven. So that's a mystery. I'm not saying that I know what it is. All I'm saying is that between the time that he meets Mary Magdalene and the time that he meets the disciples on the Emmaus Road, we also know that he meets privately with Simon, that Simon sees him. We also know that, um, who else does he appear to on that first day? So anyway, between these things, that he goes up to his father, and notice at this point he talks about my father uh, and your father. I must ascend to my father and your father, and he makes a point of that. And I think that Jesus is now saying, you are now officially adopted into the family of God. He's my father and he's your father. Some try to say that he's making a distinction. He's my father because I'm the only begotten of the father and he's your father because you're adopted into the family of God. I don't know, maybe, but I don't think so. I think he's letting her know. I'm now going to my father and I'm going to your father. That we now are, are children of God. Beloved, now are we the children of God. The Bible says as many as receive him, he gives the power to become a child of God. We are adopted into the family of God. When I was in Sunday school as a child, I was told often, we all are children of God. Everybody in the world is a child of God. It's not true. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you are the, you're the children of your, your father, the devil. 
We are a child of God when we are adopted into the family by the blood of Christ. So verse 18, Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he spoke these things to her. We know from the two disciples on the Emmaus Road that they said, on top of these things, certain women came from the tomb and they told us that he was alive, that the tomb was empty and that he was alive and that they saw him. But these things seemed like idle fables to them, it says. They just didn't believe. And again, I have no problem with that because we're asked to believe something supernatural. And let me end on that thought. When we talk about the resurrection, it is something that is supernatural. But if we have a God who created the heavens and the earth, then he can certainly come to this earth as a man and rise from the dead. And let me point out to you that that's not something that we just made up now. It's not something that Christians just decided afterwards. Let's just say Jesus came to this earth as God and then rose from the dead. I think that'll get a lot of people to follow. I'm not quite sure how many people would follow if that was the case. But as Matthew tells us, these things were all foretold. That the child who was going to be born in Bethlehem, that his days would be from old. That God was going to anoint God. Hebrews chapter 1. That unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Psalm 16, I think it's verse 10. You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. David starts off talking about himself in that psalm. You will not allow my spirit to go to hell. But then he says, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. I don't think David's referring to himself to the, as a Holy One. He's talking about the Holy One who is not allowed to see corruption. These things are all foretold. Isaiah 53, called the forbidden chapter because many rabbis won't read it to the people of Israel. They just neglect it. It's the neglected chapter in Israel. There's a whole channel on, um, on YouTube where a guy walks up to Jewish people and says, can I read you a portion out of your Bible? And he reads them Isaiah 53. And they have never heard it. Isaiah 53 says, he will suffer for us. He will be chastised for us. By his stripes we are healed. And he will die for the iniquity of us all. All foretold. And that just scratches the surface of how many passages tell us all these things would take place. They happened, and they were all foretold. And therefore, we look forward to the day when we, like Mary Magdalene, will see our risen Lord. And what a day that will be. Stand with me, would you, and let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you as we've been able to take time to consider Mary Magdalene and think about throughout all of history, how she really and truly has been slandered. But she just doesn't really care because she is in your presence and she is with you. And what really matters is not what people think, but what you think. And Lord, we would ask you now, what do you think of us? What do you think of who we are now? And what do we need to do? And I pray for those that are here today who have never made a commitment to you I pray that you would give them boldness to take the next step. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.
Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living with Robert Furrow. We hope that our verse-by-verse studies truly help you to see that God is real. He wants a personal relationship with you, and His Word is life-changing. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, we invite you to join us at one of our two campuses. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or do you have questions about salvation? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com and don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson or Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living TV Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. on KGUN 9. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.